Okay. Does it indicate that this recording to anybody? I don't see anything on my screen. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, all right, good. Well, welcome to our Sunday. Uh, and I'm really glad to see all of you guys. This is really great. Um, the first thing that I'd like to talk about as an order of business is, is that um, I'm, I know that it's strange, but sometime in March, the United States changes their time zones or their time clock into uh, daylight saving time. And then Europe does it too, but sometimes and sometimes not, it's on the same day. And since we're about to um, make that time zone change, I thought this just might be an opportunity for everybody to have a vote about what time we want to meet. Because we can change the time. But the time that we're offering now, I mean, this has been going on much longer than a year. And the people who decided the time back then are not around, but you guys are. Except for Drew. <laughs> In it for the long haul. <laughs> and Veda, I guess. I don't know. Veda, have you been here for a year? He's not yep. here now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, so today's topic is following along with last week's topic when Anna asked the question about women in the Sangha. And that the direction that I want to take it today is um, a point that I made about that the women have to be reborn again as a man. But the scripture has been lost and maybe it's because it's not so much of, uh, of, a, of a stark reality. But the only way that a man can really get anywhere is by becoming reborn as a woman also. That doesn't even sound surprising now, does it? That we have to find our, our feminine nature just like women have to find their masculine nature. And then combine them to, into a solid whole. Now, uh, this is also... Uh, well, well understood throughout Asia, and we can think of it in the sense of yang and ying, ying yang, or uh, anima and animus. In our language, we have male and female, and the attributes around that. This is actually something quite universal within each one of us, but somehow or another, the attributes became part of the rule system rather than actually be natural or purely instinctual, it's also become part of the culture in the sense that a man's supposed to be a man, but a woman is not supposed to be a man. We're going to put a glass ceiling or something there to prevent them from coming too far into the man's territory. And when man goes into the woman's territory, they're often criticized quite harshly. And yet I've seen quite a lot of guys. This is Bangkok, by the way. I've seen guys in drag that are beauty queens better than any of the women that I've ever seen. I mean, these guys have got it perfect. 
they intend to, they become completely feminine. And so they have, we have this nature, but what they do is that they're, they're trying to sacrifice their maleness in order to promote the femaleness. And that what the spiritual path is really like about is we've got to combine both of these things through development and through then the combination. And the way that that can be seen in the monk is, is that the monk becomes an advisor, he becomes a, um, a nurturer, he gives people uh, the benefits that they need. That's why the lay people keep coming back to the monks is because the monks have all of that stuff historically to offer that now we have diversified in many ways, including psychology and social working and all of this uh, kind of stuff was available through the feminine nature that the monks had developed through their participation in Sangha. But then there's the other side of that, and, and, and that is, is that women who come to the Sangha, they must also develop their power. And so it winds up being what we call kind of um, silent or quiet strength. That manliness is showing off his strength. He's got the strength and he's showing it off. Women have a different kind of strength, and it's strength of softness. But when those two kinds of things are combined, then we have real strength so that we can handle situations out there in the world. Handle it like a warrior who has already won so many battles that he can nurture his enemy now <laughs> rather than merely defeating. <laughs> And so this is actually the practice then this developed so that we can become complete and whole humans without having to take one side or the other and develop it one way or the other. And we can give many, many thousands of examples. I mean, I can just jog on and on about this, but the basic situation is, well, okay, so what? Why do we even talk about this? Well, the answer is, is that while you're developing uh, in your spiritual growth, you can kind of keep this in mind when you're finding the dukkha. Okay, can you find your power? Can you find your strength inside through nurturing? That's the path of the Buddha, is finding that power and strength inside by promoting the positive rather than defying the negative. So does anybody have any questions about this? This is actually kind of a short topic, unless we can find Yeah, something. can you develop on uh, this, uh, on what you just said about uh, when you find a dukkha, you, you can nurture. Mm -hmm. Right, we nurture our way out of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have to become friends with our darkness. It's mm -hmm. okay that you're human. It's okay that you mm -hmm. make mistakes. And we learn mm -hmm. to forgive ourselves. I mean, this is what Christianity is supposed to be all about, is to get forgiven for your sins so that mm -hmm. you'll be whole again. 
this is in fact with the monks. This is what the Patty Monk is all about once a month is coming in and getting it off our chest and forgiving ourselves and feeling good about the fact that we can be honest and open about mm-hmm. what our faults are. So we become friends with that, that nature that we don't try to kill the past. We kind of just let it be there. Yeah. yeah, it's stinky, but it's only stinky when I'm digging in it and getting it all over my hands and face. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just a pile of rubbish. Okay, so with that, that means that we're going to be putting this whole quality of nurturing in gear, the feminine side, in order to develop the masculine side. But here in meditation, I mean, all over the place, this is really a patriarchal, this is a masculine society. You already have seen it many times, Anna, that the only way a woman can really be a woman is by being a better man than all the men. (laughs) And so with that, when we start meditation, then we start doing it exactly the same way in the sense of powering our way through our sitting. we got to sit for a long time and wait for that bell to ring rather than developing the happiness through nurturing ourselves that we can just sit here and do nothing. And isn't that marvelous? Okay. So um, actually I've seen it of um, just a short piece of it just recently. I think it's in Liechtenstein, but it's actually, you can call it just generally European. And we're talking about the way that they train horses, especially in there, they train them for show horses. And I want to contrast that to the American way of breaking horses. You see, in America, they'll go round up the wild horses or whatever, put one in a corral where he can't get out. And then they rope him down and then go out there and put a saddle on and winch it down. And then somebody climbs on his back. And for seven days, that horse just goes wild all day long, having that human on his back, but he eventually settles down after a week or so. But in the other Eastern way of doing it, they take the young horse and put it into a great big barn, big, huge barn, sandy floor designed for this and then the guy goes out there with food and offers the pony an apple and pets it strokes it then he comes back the next day this time he's got an apple and he feeds the pony but he's also got a a saddle that he's actually wearing on his shoulder very prideful oh you like my saddle here, let me let you smell the saddle. And the pony smells the saddle and looks at the saddle and gets used to the saddle. And then the guy puts it on his back. And so it goes like that with the bridling. And then the first rider is the smallest good horseman that we've got. A kid, a 15-year-old boy who's done this before, you know, we train them to... Um, and they put the kid on while four or five people are actually then standing there holding and, and gently with the pony so that the pony gets used to the weight before he ever has to actually walk around and carry it. 
this actually the, the point is is that it takes them about as long to train a horse as it does in the american method except that the horse and the rider don't get very much friendship out of it <laughs> mm -hmm. okay so that's beautiful how then are we going to practice our meditation are we going to mm -hmm. jump on the back of this thing and ride it to the ground <laughs> is that how we practice mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. that grit okay that strong determination that they have in Gawanka's retreat or are we going to be very gentle on ourselves mm -hmm. this is the whole quality of the process is to start with that feminine way rather than forcing it but rather be gentle and let it happen just remember that oh i can have happy feelings i can have a happy uh moment i can have happy thoughts yeah everything's okay i don't have to get in trouble anymore and so we start having wholesome thoughts this is the way that we look at it from the um uh, the Eightfold Noble Path, basically. Here's something very interesting as a side note. Do you know in the time of the Buddha, they didn't know about it as an Eightfold Noble Path because that's an English language phrase anyway. They just called it the path. And what they really meant was the way or the maga or the, um, the method. And that it, uh, uh, it was later when the guys who were reading the sutra, like we do now, and that's where they started adding these things up. But the real point is, is that we've got very basic few of the items on the Eightfold Noble Path that brings this unification of mind, brings this anima and animus or this yin-yang thing together and makes us a whole human being and when we're in that noble state of mind where we're satisfied and don't want anything that we we already feel well loved now we can love rather than go find love i mean that's what we're all about is looking for love in all the wrong places because where we're going to really find it is within is by bringing these things together through the eightfold noble path and so the key of it is is to remember to keep looking at the divisions that we have in our mind and bring it back into unity to un undo the wholesome thought of the unwholesome thoughts and start having wholesome thoughts and we practice this over and over and over and over again and then we think we get someplace and so we stop doing it and then we crash land and then we feel bad and then maybe we get started again Never mind, start again. Keep pushing with that right effort to bring about wholesome thoughts in the mind. And by doing that, this next item that comes in with that nurturing to change all of the um, um, criticism into nurturing is that we begin to feel like this is the way we want to feel, that you can, in fact, feel the way that you want to feel. And the way that we actually all want to feel is that we're good enough, that we're qualified, mm -hmm. that we're up to scratch. Yeah, so that's when the masculine part comes, mm -hmm. right? And that's when the masculine part comes in, that we can do this. Yes. 
Okay, this is confidence that builds. And what is the confidence? Is the, the confidence based upon that I can keep coming back with nourishment. And so nourishment then over and over again winds up being confidence. And that confidence is a can-do attitude. I have a so, question, like very practical one. Mm -hmm. So, um, if we want to nurture, for example, if we are in Dukkha, you know, sometimes it happens. Uh, <laughs> no, but that's true. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And so, that is exactly the first noble truth. And so, sometimes Dukkha happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so I found in my practice that when I'm in Dukkha and I take some time to nurture this Dukkha, um, I allow myself, and this is only the first step, of course, but I can allow myself to be a victim. <laughs> and so I, a victim. A victim. Yes, yes. And so I nurture oh, myself okay, as I'm if listening. I was a baby. Okay, that's that. Now I get it. All right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Begin and then, to treat yourself like a tender infant. Right. Exactly. As if I, as if I was too. Such is the kingdom of God. Exactly. Start nurturing yourself as if you were a tender infant. Yes. Yes, so th there is two aspects of me, actually. There is one aspect, which is the mother, and there is the other aspect, which is the infant. And so I I cultivate yes. the, the mother aspect, mm -hmm. and I nurture the infant, and then, only then, I'm able to man up, you know, and say, okay, I'm able to do that, you know. But for me, the first step of uh, nurturing the baby is really important especially when i'm in dukkha you know oh yes i do congratulations okay. for you figuring it out i mean not okay. that i've been able to mention it a dozen times but that you can actually do that for yourself that's what we're going for is this is something that you do and all i can do is just you know point in the right direction so, okay, so the practice is fact, correct. Your, your practice is excellent. And not only that, but I really enjoy the way that you uh, describe it. Great. <laughs> okay, so that you can actually start to be tender with yourself. Mm -hmm. Allow everything is okay. Mm -hmm. Because then we can see where the dukkha actually is and work with that rather than trying to fix me or trying yes. to fix yourself. What we're actually doing here is we're finding the dukkha and making a change in the thoughts about the way that we think and feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that treating yourself as a tender infant is a really excellent part of that. Mm -hmm rather than slapping the baby around because it won't shut up. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. 
that that's the whole idea. And that somewhere along the line, even though we had that as babies ourselves and we know how to do that with an actual baby, somehow or another we got out of that habit and into the habit of being critical of ourselves. Do your homework. Learn your ABCs. Do your one, two, threes. Where's your calculus book? Where's your homework? You know, all of that stuff that we have from our parents that want us to fit into the society that they think is the right way to go. We get out of the feeling of mommy really loves me into, oh no, what have I got to do again now? You know, and we get into a kind of a negative state. We go along doing what we're told to do, but we don't really like it very much. Mm-hmm. Which is the, the woeful state of being an animal, a draft animal. The draft animal does what it's told to do without getting the reward. And yet when we were infants, when we were nurtured, we got taken care of. There was social security big time. <laughs> right down to changing my diapers <laughs> and picking me up when I fell down and all kinds of stuff. I was really, really taken care of very well. But then it all changed. And we have to get ourselves back to that mentality of being uh, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, curious little child that feels on top of the world except now we're doing it wisely. Then we did it ignorantly. Now we're doing it wisely. And so this is what Jesus meant when he says, suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of God. When you're nurturing Johanna, that is where you're in the kingdom of God, is that nurturing state. And when we develop that, it develops and nurture and matures into confidence that you can nurture anything at any time. You're good at it. <laughs> I, I got a question regarding that. Um, okay, cool. That, that's what I've been doing too, like um, trying to calm the ego state in the sense of like if I'm sad or angry or whatever, like checking how would I treat a four or five year old coming to me? Like, would I treat him with this with this hate towards the anger or like you are not allowed to feel sad or whatever or try to nurture him and and be really gentle to him? And what I notice is. Um, the more I do it, the more I I get softer in the sense of, for example, tearing up. Like in the last time since I've been doing it, the last two or three weeks, I'm really putting this, never mind, everything's okay, everything's fine, it's okay that there's sadness, it's okay that there's some grief about their ex-girlfriend or whatever, and I'm mm-hmm. tearing up and I feel like, yeah, opening emotionally up. Is this the right way or is like this? sadness kind of allowing it to be there and nurturing it like allowing dukkha to be there well when we look at it from the uh the viewpoint of the nurturing then when you're thinking of someone that you've lost 
the way to do that is by having good feelings of the memory of them without also condemning yourself with a set of perhaps newly found rules of how you're supposed to feel and really enjoy the way that you do feel in that loss that it's okay to miss someone it shows that you cared but that's an important point too because the buddha makes a big point of it is is that grief comes from those who are dear that the reason that we are in grief is because we do care but that doesn't make caring bad it's just that we need to bring some wisdom to it so that we know when to let go and that's an important point is is that it's okay to feel close and dear to someone but then do we have the wisdom to know when to let go, to relinquish, to recognize that we have lost them? And so having a really sad, profound moment in the recognition of the loss is all it takes. Just one moment of deep sadness, perhaps with tears. And then we say, okay, I can let it go. I can't change it. It's in the past. Just let it go and drop it. Again, so, the next the time, so the next time that you think about the person that you've lost, now you can do it with a smile. Oh, yeah, I remember him. <laughs> Had good times together. Yes, the nurturing part really got it for me. Like, that's what really got the momentum going in the last week. Like, we do this. Yeah, just seeing all the criticism and kind of never minded away, like, <laughs> it's good. Hmm. It doesn't show the video, so I don't know how long our video's been going, but that's all right. 36 minutes. Hmm. Yeah, the total call is at uh, 38 minutes. So, does anybody have any other questions or anything to feed on with this? I mean, we talked Could about... Could you talk before. a little bit? Yes. Beta, go ahead. Could you, Could you talk a little bit about uh, mind and mind objects and uh, the, the boundaries? Um, okay, let's talk about boundaries in the sense that you've got a flashlight. Okay, you're working, walking around in the dark. It may be a really high volume beam, you know, new kind of lead or whatever like that, or an old tiny flashlight. In both cases, the flashlight has a boundary. And in fact, it's got two boundaries. One of them is the boundary of the, the brightest part of the light that still has a limit in distance. In other words, that, that the best part of the light, you can see maybe a few feet away, but 75 feet or 100 yards, no, you can't do it. The light doesn't have that kind of quality of power. And so that's the kind of boundary that I'm talking about. Okay. 
So it's got a very bright spot, and then it's got an, a kind of an umbrella or a, an outer boundary that has some light, and then that fades away into um, just dark, and you have to keep moving the flashlight around to see what's going on. So, which is also what, just a description. Yes, this is just a description and a metaphor for the fact that that's where the mind is also. In other words, we cannot see very clearly in there until we really get used to the darkness. You'd be surprised at how good you can see in a cave after five or ten minutes of getting the eyes really used to the darkness. And then you can really begin to see what was completely blind to you. And so this is what we mean by the boundaries, is the boundaries of how far can we see. Or another way of looking at the boundary would be how quick are we. An example of that is, is that, and this happens on a regular basis here on this island, I don't know what the, the point of it is, is that, but we have it about once a year or so, a bird, a really big-sized ordinary bird, comes flying through the uh, the door, through the, the living room, into the bedroom, takes a full circle in the bedroom, and then flies back out the door. And I'm standing there and I'm listening and I'm watching and seeing the whole thing. And Tam and Kitty were right there in the room and they missed the show. That bird was out of their boundary. They were not awake. They were focused, perhaps even concentrated. <laughs> okay, so that's another quality of boundary, is how quick we are to wake up to what's going on so that we can watch the show rather than miss the whole show. It happens often, I think, with ordinary people that uh, um, a commercial will come on or some little show uh, on the, the television and they'll say, Mom or sister, come in here and watch this. And by the time they get in there, it's already over. And for the TV, you don't have a chance to rewind your cell phone. We just show it over and over again. Right? And so that's another quality of the boundary. Is, is that we miss stuff because we're not there for it. So, if we can understand then this way, we can actually pin a word to it, and this would, call, would be called a jiva, real ignorance. It's really ignorance because we just simply weren't there for it. But if we make up something, instead of being able to see what's real, and we think that we know what's real, we make something up, we have a thought, and then we believe the thought that we have rather than a real investigation. And now we've got a different quality of achieve, but this is what we would call delusional. And boy, are we delusional about a whole lot of stuff. And the best way to become non-delusional is by developing this skill of waking up and taking a look at what's going on. Wow, is that such a powerful tool the Buddha has given us? Just to wake up and look. <laughs> hey, wake up and look. There's a bird in the bedroom flapping around, and we don't even see it, okay? 
And so these are the kind of things then that ordinary people miss, and they also miss all the birds that are flapping around in their own room upstairs. Can we begin to see these thoughts, the kind of thoughts that put us into a depression, the kind of thoughts that put us into a bump, the kind of thoughts that put us into being critical of ourselves, the kind of thoughts that bring on fear. And sometimes these things are really fast, too. The Buddha, in fact, there's a sutta. It's in the Angatara Nikaya, and surprise, surprise, it's in the ones where the Buddha is talking about the mind, where the Buddha says, the mind, O monks, is fast. The mind is so fast that the Buddha doesn't even have an analogy for it. So here I walks in with analogies, but the Buddha didn't have any analogies. It didn't have, it's, that's, it's, that's fast. But an example would be, think about Saturn. You know Saturn? Think about Think of it in the sense of getting an image and now getting an image of the planet Earth that's seen from space, right? How far, how long did it take the mind to get from Saturn to the planet Earth? Much faster than the speed of light. It would have taken an hour for the light to have gotten there, but you do it lickety split. You can just go anywhere, just one thought after another. I mean, the mind is really, really fast. But if our awareness, if our ability to look, um, if our uh, ditty is pumped up, it's got some speed to it, then we can begin to see what the mind is actually doing. Rather than trailing after, most of us are kind of trailing after what the mind, the mind is the forerunner and even everything else is kind of behind it. But you can actually catch up with this through looking at the mind and seeing what's going on. And another way of talking about this is kind of like a camera. Short interlude. Pardon? Short interlude. Short interlude. Um, okay. If I. <laughs> if. If all the factors are together for long enough, uh, things start to switch all the time. It's like it's like sailing, and then it becomes like uh, having some kind of thrust as a rocket, and then it becomes sailing again, and it becomes like thrust as a rocket again and there is this 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 moment or moments of switching from one thing to the other and out of that comes insight it's it's all permanent okay. it's all impermanent it's all unsatisfactory <laughs> And so there is no, yeah, and there is no, no real, no real ending point of it to it. Or, exactly. or the wheel so, just on and on. Exactly right. That's the samsara. This is the wheel that you're talking about. And 
here we come in with the Dhamma. Now that you can see that, congratulate yourself. And look, I can actually see that process in the mind. I can see that rocket boost. And then I can see the letting off the gas and then the rocket boost again. So there is the word Samatha. And what we can say then, the Samatha could actually, the definition that we can give it would be steady or solid. And I'm using it in the, in the term of that when anyone is taking a selfie and holding the camera, their holding the camera will cause it to move and wiggle just a little bit. If you put the camera on a tripod, it will be much more stable. It'll give a better image, okay? So this is basically what we're talking about, is if we give the, the mind grounding into the practice of Anapanasati, so we ground in, the, ground in the body and ground in the feelings and ground into the mind states that are worthy of having. By doing that, by taking that grounding, we become very steady so that we can begin to see things that we couldn't when the mind wasn't steady. And so this would be what's called samatha. And this is why really samatha and vipassana have to go together. Because if you don't have that steadiness of mind to be able to really look at it and see what's going on, then we won't get the deep insights to it. We'll get a kind of a fuzzy focus. And that fuzzy that focus here. Go ahead, Drew. This. So some people like um, Ajahn Brahm and um, uh, some of the Pa'ok folks, they say you want a really steady mind and you want it for a long time. And I feel like I've got to steady mind, but then they say you want it so steady that you see a bright light. And then you just keep focusing on the bright light. Um, well, I'm guessing that, that's one way to do it. But guess what? But this light there thing is no seems bright light in the suttas. No bright lights in the suttas. There is bright lights in um, paganism. Mm -hmm. There are bright lights in Christianity. There are bright lights in Hinduism, but I don't know of the suttas that have bright lights. Does anybody know of a sutta where bright lights are talked about? Now, I understand the practice. And the whole point is, is that if you had a steady mind so that you could see the functions of the mind itself, wouldn't you rather do that than pay attention to a white light that you just imagined? Except that now you've got a steady mind that's so good that you can do a really, really excellent job of finding a white light to imagine. And while you're walking around the house, you may stub your toe because all you can see is that white light. <laughs> Can people do that? Can people have this light whilst walking? Uh, well, why not? I mean, if they can't do what do it when they're walking, then what's the point of doing it at all? And I just am so happy that you mentioned this. <laughs> that's yes. like a hell of a, like that's a real high level of uh, steadiness. If he can, if he can maintain it while it's. Yes, okay, but once we've got that camera rock steady, which direction are we going to point it is my question. 
In other words, what is going to be our object to focus if we can, in fact, focus? Because I think, okay, let, let me let me let me play uh, Ajahn Brahm's advocate here. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, I've got a sutra for you, but go ahead, Ajahn. <laughs> uh, I, I I think the idea is that okay, you focus on this light, then you get absorbed into you know first jhana, and then um, your your jhana gets more and more refined as you're letting go of things because you realize that you just don't need them, and they kind of just. And eventually you get to like, I don't know, fourth or eight jhana or whatever. And there you're just with awareness itself. And that's and uh, that ends up being what you're focusing on, right? Like the what subtlest awareness itself is, is like or right. Once you, you get from from, you know, first jhana and they're like progressive or more refined states where you're letting more and more things go. And so once you've let everything else go, you can focus on the thing that really matters. And that's where you get insight. And that's where, you know, all the fun you stuff use is. the word awareness and others would use the word consciousness. Itself, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or yeah. Um, um, Vinaya. OK, right. So right. that's there. Uh, I think white that's my light. understanding of their argument. OK, except that the white light is optional. And there's a whole lot to see along the way. That, that is to be seen on the way to getting the mind so steady that we can actually begin to separate the, the, the twins that fit so deeply together, consciousness and perception. And we begin to see the boundaries between them. Then we begin to see um, that, yes. that the, the that not only have we been, but we can and continue while we're watching with wisdom, begin to control perception. Yes. Okay, then in fact, we have been learning to control it all along. We just didn't know it by changing the mind from an unwholesome thought to a wholesome thought. What, what were we doing there? We were feeding it new data. And that's how we were manipulating perception was because of the data that we were feeding it. And so then the salayatana or what we result in is influenced by the new data that we're putting in. Pretty soon, especially when we begin to really see perception, we recognize not only we put new data, but we often put old data. And we have a choice about what kind of data that we're going to put in, including how little data we're going to give perception. Because this is when we begin to take the, the data away from perception and keep it at the level of consciousness. Because perception actually is trying to make sense out of it. And so when we stop making sense out of things, we can just see things the way that they actually are, just at the, at the data level, input. Just changing the and allowing the input, that's just at the level of consciousness. So we go through that unhooking part so and this, this well, the, the, the words would be um, neither perception nor non-perception and nothingness. And at the end of it is, is that when we can control the perception, we can control the feelings. And when we bring perception to an end, it actually brings to an end perception. But that can only happen when the mind is so steady 
that we're not actually perceiving much of anything anymore. And so this is why Paticca Samukata and the four um, jhanas is so intricately related down at this level of step three and four and five. Yes. But we learn to manipulate that in the beginning by intentionally changing the thoughts that we have from unwholesome to wholesome thoughts. And pretty soon we can let go of the thoughts and all together. So, so if I'm on the stage talk? where uh, with a with a bit, you know, uh, a good steady week of practice, um, I can get to the point where everything's quite relaxed. The 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 wholesome thoughts have given way to just not needing to think. I'm having I a just hang out there I... for as long as I want. Go go ahead. I'm I'm sorry. Okay. I couldn't hear you. So if I'm at the stage where, you know, after like a week of practice and like life's good and my practice is going well, and so I get to a point where uh, I just get to a place where the wholesome thoughts become unnecessary mm-hmm. and I can just relax and not, not have that many thoughts, <laughs> right? And just feeling like a light body or not even like much of a body. Anna, I can hear you breathing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Too fast. Slow it down. So, um, I have not been able to keep track of what you were saying because of yeah, the noise. No can, can can you give me a summary of <laughs> what you just asked? So, uh, I, I can usually get past the stage where wholesome thoughts are needed to gladden the mind. The mind gets gladdened and then it gets relaxed and settled. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, right. And so it's at that point. So, you know, Ajahn Brahman and folks just say, keep settling, keep being very still. And then uh, like uh, if you're sitting at a lake and if at night, animals will appear in the same way. If you're sitting very still, a light will appear. Okay. It may or may not. If yeah. you expect it to appear and want it to appear and hope it does appear, it probably yeah. will. All right. That's the whole point of it is. But we don't have to go for a white light. What we can do instead, by the way, you, you, you made a, a small little mistake a while back, and I'll just correct that, that if you're going to do the white light, that's not done in the first jhana yeah. by technical definition. As in, sorry, because the white light still is having to get into thoughts. Right. Yeah. To get into the first jhana, we already have to be free from the hindrances. That's absolutely true, and everybody will tell you, no matter what tradition they're in, is, is that the hindrances have to be dealt with first, and that means that we change those unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. Wholesome thoughts, in fact, are taking us in the direction of feeling good. So here's a question. If, it, if these kind of unwholesome thoughts are called hindrances, what are they actually hindering? The answer is they're hindering us from feeling the way that we want to feel. And so beginning to experiment with, with feelings themselves then is the path into the second jhana, not a white light. Why? Is because we, um, we first focus on the being able to apply and sustain the mind into the wholesome over and over again. And then when we get to feeling so good, then we can stop thinking 
and pay attention to how good we feel. That's the way to go, is to pay attention to the feelings themselves. And that's where we actually learn to feel the way that we want to feel. How good can you feel? And how many different ways can you feel good? And can you control that? And can you control it without actually talking yourself into it? You just work with the feelings directly because they're belong yeah, to remember it like a dimmer switch. Uh huh. And so the next step is, is that now that we know how to control these really good feelings, we can let them mellow out, which means that we're going from uh, pity back to sukha and being really, really mellow in the third jhana. And then we bring that uh, because right now, basically this whole path is moving from agitation to a whole lot less agitation in the first jhana. 90% of the agitation is eliminated in the first genre because you're all wholesome. And now then we recognize the thoughts themselves are kind of an agitation. Let's not do the thinking. That's too much work. And let's start dwelling on feelings now. And then we begin to wait, wait a minute. As good as I feel, this is also kind of too much work. And so I let that mellow out into the third jhana and then the further mellowing out is that rock solid stable place that the mind can go to and it's in that rock solid stable place that we can actually now see the process of the mind but we can also understand it and get snippets of it and see it over and over again until we put the map together while we're still in first jhana. We don't actually have to be in the fourth jhana to know this and to experience it because it's happening whether we're in fourth jhana or not. It's sort of like if you took enough photos that were out of focus and wampy jog and put them through some uh, automatic process like they do with NASA and whatnot, they can come up with some really, really high quality sharp photos because we've seen it over and over again. In fact, it happens often. We already said, look how fast the mind is. So look how fast this is often happening. All you have to do is start paying attention to what's going on and you can see it. You can figure it out. But in the fourth jhana, it's sort of like slapping you in the face. <laughs> it's, it's so clearly obvious. But at the last resort in this, White lights are, are not only optional, but there's a whole lot of other stuff to do on our way to that rock solid steady state. That this would be, in fact, the distinction between Samatha only with a white light versus Samatha Jhana. Well, let us figure out our way into that state by, by going from. Um, really really totally relaxed into wow even better than that and even more steady than that so this is the way now the whole point about all of this is is that the buddha says that the first jhana is actually all we do need that the second third and fourth jhana has never been taught in the sense that it's absolutely necessary but it is taught because it's actually quite possible and actually, for many, easy enough to do once we've cultivated the first jhana. 
short question because you're at this point. Yes, Veda. Um, never mind. <laughs> Did I hear an insight or what? <laughs> Just the jellyfish. Sorry, what was that? I'm <laughs> just the jellyfish. So, Drew, did that did that answer your your question about the the, the path with the light? Is actually an older method. The path with the light. Is that because you know that they were doing these jhanas before the Buddha became enlightened? Okay. And so the path with the light, common way back when. And then, in fact, this is part of the reason why the Parakasena is such a favorite. It's because there's your white light. You just close yeah, your eyes and that right light there, is yeah. still there. <laughs> it's not necessarily white, but yeah, the dot is very clear. Well, you, like it's there got it, you, know. you can do with it what you want to do with it. <laughs> No, I, I, oh gosh, candle, the fire casino stuff is pretty fun, but it, like, it just shows you exactly how uh, steady your mind is not. It, it does not lie, right? As soon as that dot moves, it means you know that your mind's moved and it just, it can't let you uh, kid yourself. It can't let you bullshit yourself. <laughs> Whereas yes, you can but, kind of. But uh, here's, but, here's yeah, the question. Being able to have that kind of steadiness is not really the path of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. Okay, but it is possible for you to get the mind that steady. What we need is the mind steady enough that we can see clearly enough that we can, um, let us say, manage uh, well in this life. Because most people can't. Most people are, are not steady. They're yeah. agitated. Okay, can we get ourselves really, really relaxed all the time, or at least, you know, whenever we remember that we can be relaxed and just enjoy reality? Now, in the process of doing that, we begin to focus on our senses. Okay, like focus on what you can see and focus on what you can hear and focus on the body. These are the things that we can do, and while we're focusing on that, we're actually only in input mode. And so beginning to get more into input mode, so I'm saying there that rather than going through the hardcore development of these jhanas, you can fall into it naturally from the first jhana, just by taking the object of meditation that you want to take at that particular time. So you can go, I mean, you can focus on a white light, but you can focus on almost anything. Hey, Martin. Hi. Yeah, we were just about to finish up. We've been all over the map today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So does anybody have any more questions about this? Yes, well, I have a, a more of a philosophical question, I think. 
Uh, I'm wondering if, uh, uh, to your opinion, there is uh, a chance that, for example, uh, in the state of uh, end of perception, as you said, uh, then uh, what comes out is uh, a sort of uh, uh, evidence of the fact. I mean, uh, Yes, I would say that that's the correct word to use would be we we actually have an experience. We've got evidence. We're an eyewitness to what we saw and that that then needs to be repeated over and over enough to make sure to make absolutely sure over and over again. We need to continue to investigate that we don't take for granted that we know absolutely for sure. And by the way, it's a whole lot of fun to go take another look at it. <laughs> it's a whole lot of fun to keep looking at that stuff. Keep noticing perception and how you perceive things. When you when you get an idea or an old memory, look at where that stuff came from. Begin to dissect the thoughts themselves, which is perception itself. Begin to see what motivates and what are the um, the functions of perception. Now, we can only do that when the mind is really steady. And the way to get the mind steady enough doing that is by practicing having one wholesome thought after another, under, after another. And then when those rasky, pesky, unwholesome thoughts arrive, aha, I got you. I see that. And that I see that thought is the very part of recognizing that perception. Where did that thought come from? What's the point of it? How does it make me feel? And like I said, these thoughts can come up pretty fast. The mind is really fast, but if we're steady enough, we can see that thought as it passes by, just like I can see that bird fly around the room. But nobody else in the room can see it. Basically, that happens because we're looking down. I mean, have you noticed why? I mean, the way that we live and the way that we walk, we're always looking down. While all kinds of marvelous stuff is happening, we only look up. And so this is a way of talking about it is, is that when we're looking up, having wholesome thoughts, and then one of these downers come by, we can take a look at that. But if there's a whole lot of downers coming by one after another, then it's really hard to do this work. So we have to get the mind really wholesome. So that when the unwholesome thought comes up, we can grab it. Ah, I got it. <laughs> and that's also that quality of nurturing the mind. Be happy that you can see these unwholesome thoughts come up. Like a scientist, you, you can't do an evaluation and investigation if you don't have a sample. <laughs> And so we need to work with our sampling rate. The sati would be the sampling rate. Do we remember to take a sample? And a snapshot of what the mind is doing. Oh, you're back. Okay, Drew is back. I'm not sure. Okay, all right. I thought that we had frozen.
So anyway, does anybody have any more to uh, to question about this? I mean, this is quite a deep rabbit hole we've gone down with these jhanas kind of stuff. But when the students ask me, I I, I mean, they're quite a toy to play with anyway. <laughs> but they're not magical. That's the important point. White lights are optional. <laughs> uh, I have a questions. Yes, go ahead. Uh, uh, is there a kind of uh, momentum, you know, a kind of um, building up of uh, of uh, wholesome thought, um, like for yes. example during the day, and then uh, it would be much more easier because you have building that uh, wholesome energy during the day. Yes. Right. Okay. There's a lot of different words we could use. One would be momentum. Yeah. Okay. In the sense of momentum, think of about a child who wants you to push her in the swing at the playground. The first time you push the child, it's work. It takes a lot of energy to get her going. But after two or three, now we can really get her going way back like that. And all I have to do is just touch it. Okay. In that, at the right part of the cycle. Okay. And so the right part of the cycle to put that push in is with the breath. Once on the in breath and once on the out breath, we put that energy in that this is going to be a long, deep breath. And the out breath, when that comes, we push it to make it a little bit longer and a little bit deeper and a little bit more satisfying. And we're pushing, okay? And so we keep pushing like that, and pretty soon it gains its own momentum. And then it, the, the pushes are very, very light, very easy. But if we stop pushing it all together, then like the swing will come back down to ground zero because of the gravity pulling us down. And now pushing it off again takes effort again. But by doing that cycle, we're actually now building up the muscle of remembering. We're putting, we're building up a, a mental muscle of uh, right effort. And so the effort becomes easier and easier. And when we get our mojo or when we get our attitude, attitude really, really affects the right effort. So that if you got the right attitude, the effort is easy. And when you got the wrong attitude, oh, so much work. You know that. Okay, thank you. Okay, so you get when if you get the right attitude, then this effort that we have to put in and keep going. Never mind, start again. Just keep pushing and keep pushing. And when you forget to push, when we do remember, start pushing again. Start looking. Start changing these unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts. But we do it in a very, very kind, nurturing way. Like we've got a child on that swing. We don't want to scare her. We want to give her a joyful ride. Okay. So don't push too hard. <laughs> I, without realizing, I pushed myself on uh, too hard on the swing um, a few months ago. Uh, <laughs> 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 then I came back and talked to Tamarato about it. <laughs> uh -huh. Yes, which is exactly the way. Are we going to be a cowboy training a horse or are we going to be a sophisticated aristocrat who knows how to really train horses? 
by being gentle with them rather than climbing on and having a wild ride. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? This happens, um, like, e even knowing that is not enough. Sometimes you just do it by accident. <laughs> wakey, wakey. <laughs> uh -huh, I see I'm pushing too hard. Because now I know what that looks like. Yes, excellent. Congratulations. <laughs> now you know what it looks like. Now you can catch it next time and you can settle that back in. <laughs> so what was the Buddha mean when he said ardently and persistently? He didn't say ardent, but he did say persistent. He didn't okay. say strive. He said, persist, which is exactly what I said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like doing, over and over doing again. It, repeat, rinse and repeat. But mm -hmm. it's, it's badly translated mm -hmm. to make it work because that's the Western mentality. In the time, mm -hmm. I don't think that that's the way that it's expressed at all in that sense mm -hmm. of hard work or mm -hmm. that uh, striving. No, we don't strive in the sense of working hard, we strive in the sense of, oh, well, let me take a rest. Okay, I've had a rest. Now let's go. I need another rest. Okay, I'm rested. Now let's go. Okay, persist, persist, persist. Strive in the sense of give yourself as much time. Uh, you know, this doesn't mean just in the sitting, but as in like throughout the day, whether or not you get to sit, make sure you give yourself as much time and keep it up because that's the way to go. Right. It's not about sitting down for 30 minutes and pushing really hard. It's about throughout the day as much as you can off and on the cushion. Remember, bring your back, mind back to it mm -hmm. regardless of what's going on. Remember to come back and be successful at nurturing yourself. And uh, uh, and this persistent practice, is it the, the Sampajana Pali word? Well, that's what we're talking about here. I didn't use that poly word, um, but this is what we're doing, that we're taking a new focus rather than just letting the mind do what it wants to do and feel our whatever way we're going to feel because of whatever mm -hmm. the mind is doing. Now, mm -hmm. we're actually going to do something instead. We're going to create a new cycle, mm -hmm. a wholesome yeah, yeah. cycle. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of different Pali words, but unfortunately, we didn't learn Pali as a native language. And so we have a kind of um, a lot of magical ideas about what the, the Pali is. But yes, Samantha and Sambhajana, Samati, all of those things have uh, the similar quality of steadiness. But like oh, okay. the camera, requires a tripod in order to be steady. But in fact, there is a tripod right there. The body, the feelings, and the mind are the tripod that we put that consciousness on so that we can look clearly and see what's going on. Then we begin to even see how we put things together. But, to God, but the mind has got to be really steady for us to see how we put our thoughts together. That's what That's we it. call perception, by the way, is how we put things together. 
because if we can understand that, then we'll stop coming out, come coming up with putting up with such outrageous things. We come up with really outrageous ideas about he hurt me, <laughs> he abused me, he criticized yeah, or about uh, who I am and stuff like that. Right, right, all of these questions about what we've got to protect. And it's based upon the fact that we talk ourselves into being afraid of loss of something. And so let's stop talking ourselves into being afraid and start talking ourselves into feeling safe and secure. Mm -hmm. Then we'll feel safe and secure, and that's one of the tripod legs that we need to get the mind focused and steady. Yeah, and can you talk about, um, you know, the sense of self that we construct and then the the projection of it that we make? Uh, upon I, I tell people? you what, we're getting pretty close to the end of the hour. In fact, we're over an hour and 20 minutes now. And that's a topic that I would really like to jawbone out for quite a while. So let's put that off to the next talk. Okay, okay. we will talk about what is self. But I can tell you the easy answer to that. If you can understand this one word, then you've got everything you need. And that is, instead of using the word self, use the word selfish. When you're selfish, it's the self that's selfish. And we're selfish when we feel in danger or about to lose something. So if your brother comes and asks you for $500 loan and you say no because you're selfish, that means that you miss that $500. But if you're wealthy and you've got $500 and you're going to say yes, and then everybody can feel good. But when we're selfish and we keep what we want and keep our stuff to us, like the dogs growl at each other over food, they're being selfish. But we're not selfish all the time. If we were, this would be a really terrible society. Well, actually it is pretty terrible, but <laughs> that's the reason that it yeah. is because of selfishness. And if we were all altruistic and happy and joyful and friends with everybody instead of being selfish, then we would have a much more paradise-like life to live. The question is, is can you remember to see how you make that self, how that self comes to be? Because mm -hmm. that's in mm -hmm. fact, that's what um, um, Drew and I have actually been talking about for the past 20 minutes or so is how that self actually comes to exist. It comes to exist through unwholesome thoughts mm -hmm. and bad feelings and feelings of fear. And now we have to put in that self-preservation mechanism that makes us feel selfish. So that, I mean, that's the easy thing. Just look at the word selfish and we don't need to know much more than that. Watch for when you're selfish, see it. And when you say, aha, see, I'm being selfish right now. That's insight. And then you can catch it easy when you get used to seeing who you are. <laughs> you can congratulate and nourish yourself over it. So let's finish now. Does anybody have any parting remarks? Martin, Pedro. Okay, guys. I'm really glad to see you. Thank you. You made my day. I really enjoy glad talking to you with you. Too, <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a lovely okay, day. Bye.
Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.